What's up, everybody? This is your host, Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Every week, I'm talking to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, and basically anyone else with an interesting story to tell. So sit down, strap in, and get ready, because we're going deep. Let's go. Today's episode is brought to you by Choice by Kingdom Trust and Voyager. We'll learn more about them later on in the episode. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today's guest is the CEO and co-founder of Scale Labs, a college athlete turned tech entrepreneur turned blockchain developer. Jack O'Halloran has now landed himself at the forefront of the blockchain space, solving crypto's most challenging scalability issues. So please welcome Jack to the show. Thanks for being here, man. Hey, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I got to tell you, man, uh, from the very beginning, I've got a slight bone to pick, not necessarily with you, (laughs) but I'm a huge Gator fan. I grew up in Gainesville (laughs) and and in like 96, Nebraska rolled Lawrence Phillips out of jail to come play against us. And you guys whooped us in the national championship game. So I have this like uh, <laughs> sort of PTSD about anyone who played for the Cornhuskers or for any Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, hey, sorry. That's, uh, by the way, fun. it's fun to get to talk a little college football on the crypto talk. So I, I like that. Um, we can do plenty. Yeah, hey, that was, you know, you, you know, you guys got your licks on, in on us uh, in other years and in other sports. So. We we had we had a good one that that day though I, I remember that I was I was a kid watching it and um, <laughs> yeah I think it was game. my freshman year that was like my freshman year of college and we were so hopeful and it went so so poorly for us but uh, <laughs> interesting <laughs> so you were a wide receiver at Nebraska right Yep that is right so I have to assume every time I talk to anyone who's been involved in sports and ends up in tech or a CEO of a company that they were like major lessons that they learned, whether it was about uh, work ethic or team building uh, from playing sports. Have you found that that's the case for you? Uh, things that you learned from, from playing sports your whole life that have led you to where you are? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think in a couple categories too. I think one is just like learning how to get good at a skill. So you play sports and I was always the type of athlete where you know, I, I'd, I'd be kind of average initially. And then I figured out like what I needed to get really good at. And then I would put effort into getting good at those things. And then, you know, then you, then you get compounding interest on your effort and then you can really pull away from the pack. So, you know, I had a, I was all stayed in three different sports and, but you know, a lot of it was just based off really like studying and understanding what I needed to get good at and, and even training in particular ways. So that was like one thing I think that's really valuable. And if you think about business, you think about building companies, you think about, you know, anything in life, it's really like analyzing what is going to produce the most return on your effort and then focusing on those things. So that, that was critical. And then also there's just like, Hey, like, especially being a college athlete, it's just insanely hard work. It's way, it's harder than starting a company and being, you know, an entrepreneur. I mean, that's hard too, but man, to play college football and, and Nebraska, we're just beating the crap out of each other every day. And, yeah. you know, it was, it was tough. <laughs> a few times a day, I would imagine. It's actually interesting, yeah. um, you know, watching these programs try to return in the context of COVID and try to find a way to do all of that hard work while uh, keeping their, their players healthy. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be on one of these teams now. Yeah. You know, I, and my, my heart goes out to these guys that work so hard and you, know, you train so hard and like the women and men playing college sports who, you know, this is their one chance. And thankfully the NCAA granted a lot of them an extra year of eligibility, but right. I mean, hopefully get on the field this year. Right. It's yeah. It's crazy, it's crazy stuff. So what, tell me about your path, I guess, from uh, post-college to becoming, yeah. you know, the CEO and, and founding scale. Uh, how, how did you uh, progress to that point? Yeah. So, uh, you know, and I'll be, it's kind of interesting because I was not technical when I was in college. I think, I think a lot of my friends were like, you're doing what? Um, (laughs) Mine too. But you know, one one of, one of the things that's interesting about technology though, it's just kind of like going back to that sports analogy. 
there's a certain set of things to learn and to understand. And it's like learning a new language. If you want to learn Spanish or Japanese or something, you, you have to like understand the framework, understand like what you need to get good at and practice. And like, and then technology is very clear. There's a very defined set of rules. It's not magic. And, but you can't jump in the deep end. You have to start at like a learning, you know, a basic area. And I, I have to say, I got, I got, I, I was very fortunate. I, I grew up in Nebraska in a small town uh, but I had two uncles, two of my dad's brothers had moved to the Bay Area and were, were both surgeons and they're doctors in the Bay Area. And through their relationships, they said, hey, you should meet some of these people. Maybe you should move to Silicon Valley and work at a tech company. And I was thinking to myself, like, me work at a tech company? You know, I like want to throw my computer out the window and I don't understand what's working. And, and so, you know, ended up like getting a job at a company called Good Technology and you know what? I, I went to school and I, and I decided, hey, I didn't, I started in sales and I decided I don't want to just be good at learning the techniques and mechanics of sales. I want to learn about the technology. Like, how is it working? Like, what's the, what are the principles of what makes this work? And I started first just understanding what it did. And then you start getting into like the technical frameworks and then the coding language and eventually, you know, started my own enterprise software company, uh, became a founder after we had a, we had an exit to Motorola for almost half a billion dollars. It was a successful exit. And Sounds that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, we raised nice a lot round, of capital. Nice, too. Round, no, nice round number. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, I mean, if all, like, I think we raised $250 million also. So it was like, you know, it, you know, would have been way better to have that type of exit and raise 10 million, but it was still a win uh, and a great win for everybody involved. But uh, I, then I decided, Hey, I want to go start my own company. And then uh, had, at this point, you know, and the first one was a digital currency platform where NASA and other companies could could use this internal currency, like these NASA bucks, to buy resources internally. And and so, like, got really into digital currencies and doing this. But um, one thing that happened was I realized we had about ten people, and I was like, "Well, I'm the only person that doesn't know how to code." And you know, here I am, like, you know, used to be a football player, used to like running my head into other people, and you know, doing squats and. Uh, bench presses and not necessarily like sitting in front of a, a keyboard and like learning technical framework. So I was in Japan for work. We had businesses in Japan. I went, I think I spent 500 days in Japan and I was there on one of my trips and I just said, you know what, I'm going to like look online and see if I can teach myself. And I just taught myself how to code awesome. and, and it made me such a better teammate and uh, value add player to that startup that I had started, Octana because all of a sudden I could have different level conversations with my team and help really guide the product roadmap and product strategy. It's interesting. I, I spent uh, almost six months in Japan. I, you, you probably don't know my background, but I was a DJ for about 20 years and I uh, was the DJ in the band for like the Michael Jackson of Japan, basically. So I was like a band uh, member and we toured all of Japan. So I spent six months there, which to me was an extremely culturally eye-opening experience, especially seeing, you know, kind of every corner of that country. Did you have that same sort of feeling spending that much time in uh, Japan, especially I'm from Gainesville, Florida, you're from Nebraska. It's yeah. not, it's yeah. not exactly like uh, moving over from the big city. Yeah. That is one of the cool things about Japan is that it's so culturally different and you, you go to a lot of countries around the world and everyone's wearing the same clothes and kind of like watching the same television and having a, you know, similar cultural norms and customs. And, and in Japan, it's very different. And there's such like reverence people have for each other and space and process. And it was, uh, it was amazing. I, and you know, I, I learned Japanese uh, over the time I was going there for seven years and I went over 50 times and uh, it, yeah, I, I loved it. I had a blast. Yeah. I love it over there. I was definitely shocked the first time I was like in a crowded nightclub and I walked up to the bar to get a drink and everybody looked at me like I was insane. And then I looked to the right and there was this huge line for the bar, which is what you're talking about. Like they're so orderly and respectful. You can't even, I mean, they thought I was like crazy for, for walking up to the bar to get a drink, uh, which is, I mean, obviously is serving them well in the context of, uh, I think how things are now, you know, and it's easy <laughs> when people listen to the government and, uh, you know, keep their distance and wear masks and things like that. So it's an interesting cultural difference there. So you spent all this time in Japan, you, you started obviously multiple companies, you became a coder. Why cryptocurrency? Why scale? What, I guess, what, uh, what problems did you see they existed and why did you decide that you, you were going to fix them? Yeah. And, and by the way, when I say I became a coder, I, I learned how to, but I want to just say real quickly, like that too is an art form and an, a master skill. And 
I know how it works, but I, you know, I'm so fortunate to be paired up with some phenomenal engineers who like Stan, uh, my, our, my co-founder and CTO and the whole team we have at scale. Uh, it's, it's incredibly helpful to know how to do it and be able to do it and understand frameworks. Um, my strengths are really understanding product market fit, building a team, knowing how to execute, um, you know, designing team structure, designing product marketing and, you know, building a plan to go like support customers and build a product. And, uh, and thankfully I know how to code. So I'm able to, to participate and support, but this is a master skill. And, and in particular, what we're doing, we're service, like we serve, this network serves developers, right? And so um, I have a lot of empathy for those users and just, but just want to give them props and credit because they're way better at that than I am. Uh, you're not, so you're not Mr. Robot. But, but Hey, so I, it was 2013. I was actually in, in Shanghai and one of my buddies uh, who's one of the founders of, of Coindesk was saying, you've got to buy Bitcoin, learn about Bitcoin. And I had kind of, I'd had the white paper passed around in 2011 and I was like, really Bitcoin? And I was there with a lot of other friends and, and it was uh, actually a friend's bachelor party. And so, uh, and a lot of tech people and, and everyone was talking about Bitcoin. And so then kind of like went down the rabbit hole then. And then when Ethereum launched, I realized I was like, that was like the, another like eye-opening light bulb. And then when I was starting a new company in 2017, uh, I was working on a mach another machine learning AI uh, SaaS product. I, the prior company had started Octana almost every biotech and pharmaceutical company in the world uses this. And if you've ever had a, a drug prescribed to you by a doctor at some way, shape or form, Octana probably played a role in getting the doctor information for your prescription. Um, and you know, and I was looking at that category again and, and realized, Hey, there's so much opportunity in crypto to build something where we do, we actually change the dynamics and the parameters of how systems work and how, how entities work. And if you look at scale, guess what? It's open source. It's like Ethereum and Bitcoin. Like nobody owns these things. You just, right. we all participate. The code's open source. You have ownership over, over tokens by way of your key structures. And you can even vote with them like in scale. If we want to change economics, well, I don't, I'm the CEO of scale labs. I have, have no control of the scale network. We right. have to, we have to vote. And if you have tokens staked in the network and, and you know what, and when people pay for a scale chain, it doesn't go to scale labs doesn't go to anybody else working on the network. It goes to validators and delegators that are staking. And you can create these new business frameworks where you have more egalitarian and democratized business models. And you can, and it just destroys middlemen uh, float. So middlemen that are taking huge rakes uh, really can't compete when communities are owning and running systems. So got excited about that, started working on scale, actually started working on building a DAP and was introduced to Stan Cladco, our CTO. He was working on building a DAP and, and he was actually working on building like six of them. And I was like, how can you build all these things? He's like, well, I've designed this architecture that does this and this and this. And, and I was like, draw this out for me. And, and then we put our heads together and we said, you know what, let's build this for everyone else. Let's not build DAPs. Let's support DAP developers and let's, let's build infrastructure and middleware. And that's what both of us had done in our career anyway. So it was a natural fit. And so does how, how does scale do that in a, in a unique way? What's the value proposition that you guys bring that nobody else is, is doing? Yeah. So if you, you think about, so blockchains, right. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to go you can do technical. It. You can do we'll it for dummies. More technical. Yeah, you definitely, you can start with blockchain for dummies. <laughs> yeah. Adapts for dummies and go from there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, if not dummies, we'll just say like, there's obviously many, many smart people uh, that, um, that aren't engineers who understand the way crypto works. So I'm going to use, I'm going to go for that angle of that's not engineering. I'm the, I'm the dummy. Yeah, I'm the dummy. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all, man. So, so we think of blockchains, right? They're really computers. We'll call them nodes, but these computers all have to just say the same thing. They carry the same database, right? And then they, they have unique mechanisms depending on the consensus to, for them to talk and say, Hey, we all have the same state. And if you have the same thing, I have you know, great. Then guess what? We can process a transaction. A smart contract is another step than just a transaction. It also can include a piece of logic. Like did the bulls win? Okay. Yes, they won. Well then this happens too, right? You right. can incorporate data points and that's what smart contracts do. 
And so what scale does is most blockchains, the more nodes you add, the more secure they get. But the slower they get and the more expensive they get to run because the bigger the history is in the data, the more complex right. it is and the more it's just bloated and shared across everything. So when we think about regular applications, we think about like I'm using my Gmail. Guess what? Only Gmail, only Google has that data. When I, then I, I'm, we're using Zoom meeting. Guess what? Zoom meeting has servers. Only Zoom meeting uses those servers. Right. But in blockchains, Zoom, if, we, if Zoom and Google ran on a shared blockchain, if Zoom started getting out of use and like it has in the last couple of months, all of a sudden my email would get slower to use and more expensive. Right. And so what Scale does, Scale has this way where we can still have a big shared ledger called Ethereum, right? But then every application that's a decentralized application gets its own version of Ethereum. And so, in, and so if I have an email, a decentralized email client or a decentralized uh, video client, I'm just using these as, you know, basic examples. Of course. And one's successful and the other's not, they have no impact on each other. They each have their own backend database. And guess what? They don't have to pay per transaction over in that zone. They just pay for the compute resourcing. And so you get, everyone gets the speed, efficiency, and uh, high throughput, and they're not impacted by anyone else because they have their own zone. Okay. And so that's what scale does, but there's one more unique thing that happens there because when you have a smaller set of nodes, it's easier to get two thirds of them to collude to steal money. Right. And so what's, so scale basically has a big shared network. And what it does is it randomly selects the computers or nodes and rotates them for each application. So you basically have this big pool and at any given time, 16 of them are working for me and then, then they're swapped out. And then they might be working for you tomorrow and the next month they're working for someone else. And so to get them to collude, to steal money is really difficult because you, right. they, they all don't even have know this, who they'll be working with on any given day. Yeah. And, and if they're bad, they lose all their money. Right. And so, and so it's really hard in a real world environment to organize a collusion attack when you have a big pool you, and then use randomness, rotation and incentives. And so that's, that's really, you know, this in, in simple, as simple terms as I can try to s describe it. Yeah. The magic of what scale does. So what will be the effect of Ethereum 2.0 on your business? So then we talk about this big shared chain. Well, that big shared chain is only going to be 64 uh, versions. Right. So Ethereum has shards, there's 64 shards. Still, you know, Zoom and Google, if they're both on Ethereum, share things and have shared price and and, you know, and we're talking like hundreds of transactions across the network. And so what Scale does, scale, still, scale was designed with ETH2 in mind, and it was designed to support ETH2 and give people still their own backend. And they don't have to, their cost isn't impacted by other people. Their security is not impacted. It's still two lines of code. You can connect ETH2 to Scale um, just like you can in ETH1. Um, you will be able to in ETH2s around. So, so, you know, hey, the just basic transaction throughput issue will be less pronounced. Instead of 20 transactions per second, we might be getting hundreds. Right. But we think that we're gonna need millions and millions of transactions a second to make all of these smart contract calls if we are gonna really see growth in decentralized applications. And how do we get there? Because obviously it's like, uh, many people I guess don't realize, but Bitcoin and Ethereum are kind of like your grandpa's beat up old Cadillac at this point with the, with the speed of some new <laughs> blockchains that are coming out. It really is the older technology. So how do we get from, you know, the 10, 20 transactions per second that we're talking about on Ethereum to, you know, 10,000, a hundred thousand, a million, how does that scaling happen? Yeah. So if you think about each scale chain, this is what scale does. So scale right. uses the main net. So the main net, anything that comes into scale basically gets frozen on the main net and then it produces a clone. And so let's say you have, you know, 10 ETH in a certain DAP. And actually your 10 ETH don't go into scale. They get frozen there in the main net. And then you produce these cloned or wrapped versions. And then you have these scale ETH. Right. And then they run in scale. And then when it goes to scale in this application, that application can do 2,000 transactions per second. And the other one can do 2,000. The other one can do 2,000. And it just grows linearly. And there might be 100,000 nodes in the scale network supporting all the different applications out there. And each one, each 16 nodes adds another 2000 transactions per second to the network. So it can grow linearly. And then you, 
you still can use the value and security of the mainnet. And when you leave, your clones get burned or destroyed. And maybe you only have four at that point, or you have 40, but um, it goes back to the Ethereum mainnet. You get what you should have, and then you take it back. And you as a user don't even need to know you use the scale chain. You just right. use Ethereum. And then the developer on the back end has this handshake to the scaling platform and it's fast and easy and, and they don't need to, you know, we end users shouldn't need to know about backend systems. Just use applications, right? And keep money secure. Funny. I can see why your uh, high school friends would probably be like, you're doing what now? You know, when I, when I heard your college, your college, like uh, teammates, how'd you get into this? Cause it's a, uh, I mean, you know, when you start to lay it out there, it obviously, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty complex. I mean, you're really talking about the future of the way that money moves, the way that transactions happen. I mean, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty intense. So what kind of companies come to you? Who, what are your clients like? You don't have to necessarily go into specifics, but you know, who, who are you basically servicing with this? Yeah. So right now, it, Ethereum is where all the developer traction is happening. Always. I mean, I bet 99% of the developer traction, people building dApps are building it on Ethereum. And so usually right now, these are like, you know, five to 50 person startups uh, that, are, that, that see an opportunity to say, hey, let's go build, let's use community, com community and you know, decentralization, decentralization is not a good word because it's loaded. I like to say, let's, let's, let's grow market share by having better profit sharing and better community governance and community control of this product. Right. And that's what blockchains do. They let, and then what you're going to do is you're going to go compete with a competitor to say, pricing's better, control's better, ownership of your data is better. All these things are better. You get, you know, a say, it's like a democratized business. And um, you even see businesses that are centralized doing this, like Reddit's doing it, but just with a couple subreddits. And they're saying, hey, we're going to give up control of these subreddits, right? right? The crypto subreddits, we're going to have this Ethereum token. And you know what? The group is in charge of these things. Reddit, the company is not going to manage these things, the token and the token governance. And, and, you know, and they're giving up control for growth. And so we'll see big companies take hybrid models and then smaller companies are saying, hey, I see these, these big companies that are middlemen that are taking like Uber, for example, which is a tough one to execute on. I, don't, I bet no one will do it well for three to five years, but Uber takes 30% of every ride. Right. What if the community ran the software and there was a stable token introduced in the middle that had like a maker type feature on the back end that gave people, you know, some upside by participating, holding the, ba the base token. And the fees are always paid in the growth token and the stable coin, the US dollar backed stable coins used to pay for the ride. The community runs the servers and the code and, and all of a sudden drivers get paid 20% more and riders pay 10% less or each get a 15% of, of Uber's cut. And you know, what are people going to use? And hey, we want these rights for drivers. Well, let's vote. It's not like the right. Uber execs, it's uh, it's like a yeah. real union. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the yeah. spirit of what a, a union should be, right? Is that yeah, everybody but with better control voice. unions, yeah. unions without have the, issues yeah, because in theory, without the leadership political. and without the politics. Yeah, yeah. And it's like everyone can sit at home and like punch in their votes when they're staked and you don't have to have like a union leader, you know, pushing you around to control your vote. Not yeah. that unions are bad, but just they... Yeah, no, to, to, your I, I meant the, the spirit of it, not, not in practice yeah. by any stretch. So we've seen, I mean, at this point, probably thousands of these projects, right? Especially since mm -hmm. 2016, 2017, their coins are trading all over the place. I mean, what do you think happens to all these? I mean, a lot of them are already zombie projects, probably, even though their coins yeah. are being traded and stuff. I mean, do you think that we see this huge like expansion of the net and we do see thousands and thousands of successful, or do you think that there's just going to be a few that sort of the cream rises to the top and are, are successful? Yeah, I think it'll be a lot. My guess is it's going to be a lot like the 99 bubble, which I, you know, I was graduating, I just starting college in 2000. So I was yeah. not privy to all the details of what happened, but, you know, was able to observe it and then retroactively study it. And hey, there's just so many things that pop up and there's people trying to get quick money and whether they're teams and projects or investors, everyone's trying to, uh, but now we're at a point where I think traction is king and the only 
projects that will survive are ones that have real traction. And the speculation part of this is starting to die. So I yeah. do think we're going to have a delayering. I think 80% of projects and coins are, and you are, you see like these ghost coins, uh, ghost networks. And Evan Van Ness is somebody who posts all the ghost network stuff on Twitter. Um, I, he's always like calling out uh, different chains. and like, look, there are no transactions for the last 20 minutes or something. Yeah. Uh, um, and you know, they have billion dollar valuations and no one uses these things. So that's, that stuff's going to die. And then, but you know what, once, and there'll be a delayering 20% will be here, but then I think there might be, you know, 10 times as many projects and teams and businesses because once we kind of have that, like that shakeout, because I believe in, I think the industry is going to grow dramatically. Right. We're but early quality. Yeah. We're, we're going to look for metrics, people that buy tokens and get smarter about what metrics to look at. Like, and you know, you can go on GitHub and just see like, is the team doing anything? <laughs> yeah. You don't need to be an engineer. Just go on GitHub, look and at your GitHub repositories. <laughs> yeah. And you can see the activity that happens. There's an activity gauge and it's like, are people working on this? How many people contribute? How many people work on this? And if something has like a hundred million dollar total diluted valuation and they haven't changed the code in six months, like, you know, run the other direction. So somewhat like uh, the Pareto principle, 80, 20, you know, uh, 20% will be successful. 80% will fail. And you know, 80% of the success will come from those 20%. Um, yep. It's interesting. So we all kind of, uh, and you were building during this ICO bubble, I guess in 2017, mm -hmm. some have already compared, you know, 2017, I guess, to 19, to 1999, the, the sort of, the, the sort of crash at that point. Yeah. Um, how much do you think it hurt, uh, the idea of mainstream adoption, I guess we can talk about what we think the path to mainstream adoption is in general, yeah. but how much damage do you think like that insane sort of bubble popping? And I mean, companies, as you said, raising a billion dollars when they probably needed like a few million dollars to build a product and then never bought building it. I mean, how does that affect, I guess, public perception and the idea of mainstream adoption go going forward? Do you think that it did irreparable damage or do you think that, you know, we can heal from that? No, I think, I think, I don't think it did irreparable damage. I think what it did, I think it, it drove a lot of awareness, but then a lot of people got burned. The people who found out late and started buying late and started getting pumps and put more money in, they got, they got crushed. Yeah. yeah. And they lost a lot of real money. And so I think what we have now is we have a lot of people who should be really concerned and should be looking for real signals of growth but I think the market uh, and they should be looking for maturity and how projects launch if they're launching. So I'll give you some examples, some things that, that, this, that scales doing that I was really just, you know, unmoving and about like, and just passionate about is one, what, what happened back then too, is you had people who bought VCs bought early discounts and they got like half the price of other, you know, people who bought in like a public sale, which was, you know, maybe one hundredth the price of other people after like the token started pumping and then they had no lockups. And then you look at the teams and the teams had no lockups. Just dumping. And so what you do is you create this dynamic where people just dump on the, the retail market or secondary market coming in. And that just like, and then like, you know, motivation to keep building and doing stuff kind of goes away. And then they go find the next one to do that same kind of mechanism with. So, so what we're doing, we have our team vesting schedules don't start until the mainnet launches. Um, and our investors lockup schedules don't start till the mainnet launches. That means me, I've been working for two and a half years. Right. I haven't invested a single day, but right. you know, we do that to protect people that want to participate in the network because in scale too, you're not buying a security. You're actually buying a token that can be used. Yeah, and so when utility. we sell the token or yeah. And so when people buy the token, I guess we're not going to sell it. Consensus is going to launch a proof of use uh, mechanism launch where you can buy a token from them through this uh, Dutch auction process, but then you have to stake it in the network and there's no trading for 90 days. There's 90 days where the network gets healthy the validator set up the nodes, people join the network and they stake. And then 90 days later, it goes on exchanges, but you still have these lockup periods and you sold tokens and it ends up becoming a like, you know, I think a much more fair way for everybody to be able to buy without getting screwed over by uh, people. And it's more compliant and it, you know, and it makes it really clear that the token's a utility.
And then, hey, the other thing is we have 45 dApps signed up to use the product and you know, 30 uh, top world-class validators to run the network. And you have to build that stuff before you want to take people's money and let them bet on you. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Because it's just, you know, it's slower, slower success, but more ethically, uh, I think, in the right direction. Yeah, I mean there's an existing model for this, right? I mean, employees of companies get stock options or then they invest at a certain pace. They don't give a a first week employee all of their uh, options for the next 10 years so they can go sell the stock and have no vested interest. So, I mean, it's, it is crazy what a wild West, I guess that phase was and how, uh, you know, insane those models were. I mean, you could tell at the time, but looking back, I guess, how difficult has uh, it been navigating the, I guess, ever-changing landscape of regulation operating in the United States. Don't be a part of the 7.1 million Bitcoiners in the United States who have Bitcoin and a retirement account, but don't have Bitcoin in their retirement account. Seriously, you can hold Bitcoin in your retirement account and not just GBTC. How can you do this? Through a self-directed choice IRA by Kingdom Trust. The first 1,000 users to open a choice IRA will receive $62.50 in free Bitcoin. Visit retirewithchoice.com slash wolf. That's R-E-T-I-R-E-W-I-T-H-C-H-O-I-C-E dot C-O-M slash W-O-L-F. Podcast listeners receive extra points to move up the waitlist and get their choice IRA first. Do it right now. It's time to take control of your financial future and free yourself from the restrictions of classic retirement accounts. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission-free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play Store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. You know, because you've touched on securities versus utility mm -hmm. tokens, and there's always this like putting it to the Howey test and deciding, is it a security? Are we violating any FinCEN? You know, all those things. Well, we did. So Scale Labs Inc. was working on this. We raised an initial SAFT round. And then we decided was, hey, this should be community owned. And what we did is we essentially gave the assets uh, to uh, to a foundation in Liechtenstein, and the SAFs went to them. And then Scale Labs just supports that, that the foundation as a service provider. And we you know, do engineering. We help do sales and marketing and network and community growth and support and things of, the, of that nature. And then this in Liechtenstein, there's a clear blockchain act with clear governance and rules around what constitutes a utility token, what, what things you need to do for due diligence, what KYC AML processes you have to follow. And... And so in Liechtenstein, that entity then launches the token. And then what's also happening is Consensus has a really cool program called Activate. So if you go to Consensus Activate or read about the Brooklyn Project. Mm -hmm. And so they approached the foundation and they said, and the the Anstalt of the foundation, which is the kind of the business arm, and with this model and the, the net, the token's going to launch that way. It happens to also be compliant um, to the, you know, from my perspective to the greatest degree possible of def- for us understanding of what defines utility right. <laughs> and a, or a security. And that's, and so it, it, you do, it complies with us laws, but it's uh, this other entity is doing it because, you know, they have a clear legal framework and in the U S it's not, you know, there's certain things that are really clearly violations and you need to make sure you don't do those. But this way, the, you know, the entity can launch. And, but let me tell you, it's not, it's just, it takes an entirely new level of effort. It's like usually when you start a business, right. you just build a product and you sell it to people. Yep. <laughs> and in crypto, you build a product and you let other people run the product. Other people buy it. 
they sell it to back. They sell it to each other. And then, you know, and then you have this whole legal framework thing that needs to, that frankly is a huge time and money sink because it's a new battle in itself. But I think we've been thank, we've been lucky to have really phenomenal lawyers and, you know, and then this entity in Liechtenstein that's been able to, to help offload that. Do you think that the United States is extremely far behind with, uh, I guess, embracing and understanding the importance of blockchain um, and crypto in general, but I guess really the underlying technology and making it so difficult seems to be, in my, in my eyes, to the detriment of the United States because other countries are getting ahead. And if we believe this is the future, I mean, do you think that the United States is really far behind here? You know, I actually have to say uh, a little bit, yes, but also this is what I think what the, what our govern, what our governing bodies are trying to do are protect consumers. And so the SEC, I actually, I'm really supportive of. And so if you think about what they're trying to do, like my grandma gets, my grandma's 92 and she gets called by people trying to get her to buy stuff. And of course, and, it's you know, so sad. And like, and it's like, and so you have, and if you think about a lot of crypto tokens, like they didn't have a product built yet. It's like supposedly decentralized, but it doesn't exist. And you have this token and you have all, you know, these advisors and it does all this stuff, but a lot of it's like not real. And then you're trying to get people who don't have the understanding to go and, you know, analyze to say, Hey, this is real. This is a good investment. And so the SEC basically says, you know, they have a framework now and it says, don't sell a token unless the network already exists and is running right. and it doesn't require. And if you're decentralized, it means you're not, you know, requiring people to continue to do work before the thing, you know, can function in a decentralized manner. And so they, they issued a framework that made a lot of sense to me, but you know, it, it's also like you want to, you, you don't want to perpetuate income inequality where only accredited investors can make dumb bets because I then talk about this all you know, the your time. normal person yeah. can't invest in and start. And so the, cons the consensus thing is cool or like the proof of use thing, because you don't have to be accredited to buy you did, but you have to take a test uh, that shows you have basic blockchain knowledge. Oh, that's interesting. And so if my grandma took it, she would never pass it. She's 92. She doesn't know anything about technology or blockchain, even though she knows how to use FaceTime now, which is cool. But um, <laughs> anybody who invests in these things, who knows enough about blockchain and has read skim the white paper, like, you know, they're going to, they're going to qualify. So things like that, I think help keep fairness and protection uh, in good balance. Right. So there's basically a happy balance that we're trying to achieve, I guess. It's a, this conversation, yeah. that a conversation comes up so often when I talk to the CEO of any company in this space is the idea, <laughs> I guess, of accreditation. And obviously like that balance between trying to protect people, but also saying that if you don't make $250,000 a year or whatever, you're not allowed to invest your money as you see fit or, you know, speculate on things that you may really believe in. It really is a hard battle there because you know and during that ICO, ICO bubble it probably did in retrospect in retrospect save a lot of Americans from uh, making some pretty terrible investments because you know we were locked yeah. out yeah so maybe that's the silver lining and when I think about the United States being somewhat behind I'm a trader you know by I guess mm -hmm. by by a trade trader by trade um, mm -hmm. and so it's that the tax code is what is so difficult for me yes. it seems like we're yes. so behind like you know the fact that you can't spend crypto without it being a taxable sale of an asset and having to worry about if I buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks with Bitcoin that I've now sold Bitcoin and have to somehow account for that. I think those are huge barriers to entry for mainstream adoption yep. in this country. I don't know. Your I, I totally agree. Cause, cause tokens aren't a real token like Bitcoin or with a scale token after it launches like Ethereum ERC, 20, you know, all these token standards like ETH itself, they are functional units of software that do things. And, and, you know, but also they're meant to be programmable money. And if I want to use them for money and I have to pay 40% short term tax, like what a mess, right? Yeah. You just won't. And the other thing is staking is also kind of like, a complete gray area right now. So let's say I stake in a network and I get bounty returned to me and I just want to keep restaking that. And I want to keep restaking that. Why should I pay 40% each time I get paid 
Right. When I'm not spending it, it's just compounding. And it's kind of like, you know, if you're an apple farmer and you take 10% of your apples and you just like eat them and use them for seeds and replant them, should you have to pay, you don't pay tax on that quantity. You only pay tax, you take them to the market and sell them and right. exchange them for, for cash. So it's an amazing it's, analogy. Yeah. <laughs> amazing analogy. So yeah, to me, I, we need reform. I, I would love to see. And the, the thing is the securities law and the tax law seem to be, you know, like each taking the most favorable stance for the entity and they're, they're diametrically opposed and like, hold on. If I take that logic here, then that doesn't make sense. And the logics don't match up. If there were one logic around what a token was and that, you know, the U S like we as like all being U S citizens could say, Hey, like this is what a token is. And then we match the securities and the tax laws to that. I think we're in a better position. And the sec framework is a great, I think, in step in the right direction. And, um, and I hope the tax law also, you know, keep, keeps evolving yeah. as well. Yeah. It seems like it would be, first of all, I mean, we both all know that the IRS is like woefully underfunded and undermanned anyway. So they're not going to go out and probably track most of this for people. They're just creating more work, but it seems that logically it would just be kind of like you said, your cash goes into the crypto market, whatever you do with it within that market is fine. And when you cash out, you pay the taxes on the difference. I mean, it would be so simple, kind of like how Forex, I guess, is taxed when you trade currencies. You know, I buy Bitcoin, I go trade it for all these other things, I spend it. And when I cash that Bitcoin out, I pay, you know, I make a hundred grand, I pay taxes on that. Yeah. <laughs> it or, seems you know, or if I buy something, if I go trade it for a good, I buy a car, like, I pay sales tax on the yeah, car. You're already <laughs> paying the tax. It's a double taxing. And if you yeah. want to trade altcoins, you get taxed. You're selling Bitcoin when you buy it. Now you're selling that when you come back. I mean, it's like you get five taxable transactions out of one simple thing. And it's just, it just makes absolutely no sense. It's somewhat infuriating, but what do you got to do? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I, I, anyways, I, I think there's, there's good stuff on the horizon. I, I hope, but uh, you know, I just kind of take this strategy like, Hey, just pay taxes and, yeah, right. let's hope, hey, just keep our fingers crossed. Let's make sure, <laughs> like, yeah, you, you know, they, we have you good, don't want to be the test case. That's for sure. Yeah, let's like lobby. Let's we need a like a lobbying group that educates the government lawmakers on what crypto is. I think it's 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 not you know we talk like we were talking about earlier. It brings more democratization to businesses. It helps data ownership. Uh, it helps uh, the rights of consumers that use products. It helps people who participate in work for these like entities have better rights and better pay. And there's also an appreciation of these assets. Uh, but these, this is like such a net positive for society yeah. um, that I think, you know, we need to make sure the U S doesn't get too far behind. So you talked about earlier is interesting. You talked about obviously exiting a company for half a billion dollars, but that it basically had to raise $250 million to do that. Um, how does venture capital play a role, I guess, in crypto? Uh, what are, are there unique challenges to raising money in this space that are different from the other space? I don't think a lot of people realize how brutalized, obviously, the owners of the companies who start a company or the inventor of a product before it, you know, all the VC and the sharks mm -hmm. kind of come in, how, how little they often benefit at the end. Um, are, are there unique challenges in crypto to raising money to start these products? start these companies. Yeah, you know what? It, it, I think the framework in crypto is so much better than traditional startups. I mean, so many companies, you look at founders that uh, start companies and because of the nature of dilution with equity, you keep growing the pie and growing the pie and growing the pie. And you, know, you might have 50% of the company as a founder. And then over time, you might have like 5% or 2% or 1% or half a percent. Not a percent. And the company <laughs> sells for like, 700 million and you hardly make any money because right. of the nature of the way uh, um, investing works in the venture capital industry. And, right. and, and it's all about like making sure your valuation goes up and you, you raise as little money as you need, as little money as possible and do the most with it at the, and raise it at the highest valuation. And you protect your ownership stake. But sometimes that doesn't happen and you have employees, you need to keep them you know, paid and you need to take a down round to keep the company going. So things like that happen too. And, but the cool thing about crypto is investors play a role. They often stake in the networks and they secure the network. So not just, they're like supporters. They're not, 
you know, they are actually actively playing a role with security. And, you know, there's very clear rules. These things aren't, you know, like there's a framework of who owns what. And just like for the users and like the people who run servers, the money goes, doesn't go, there's not a middleman in, in most of the, these crypto economic mechanisms and designs. You're really growing community by bringing value to the users. And then as a team, you know, hey, you only have a fixed pool that you have and then you can sell. You can't print more tokens, right? And Bitcoin's like, hey, we, we only have a certain amount of Bitcoin. There's only a certain amount of scale. And so you have to like be really smart with the way you spend the money and how you raise it. And we've been doing that. We've just been acting like we're, you know, we've raised decent money, but we're, you know, $17 million roughly has been raised, but we're spending money like we've got 2 million because that's the way you have to act. You have to, right. um, yeah, so that's what makes startups successful. So, but Hey, raising money in the space, it's same, it's same similar thing. Like investors or people that are looking to invest money. They, you know, they're looking for good deals. They want to know if you have product market fit. They want to understand how you're going to use the money. What, um, what is, what, you know, what are the uh, dynamics at play? And, and in crypto, it's also unique because you really, uh, you know, these things aren't securities. So you have to really be talking about the functional use of all and how their role and their participation brings, um, brings, you know, more strength, security, growth to the network as well. So you just said you're not going to print more Bitcoin. We can't print more scale. They're obviously deflationary assets. So what do you think about what the Fed is doing right now with uh, infinite, <laughs> infinite quantitative easing and printing, quote unquote, you know, as much money as, uh, as we're going to need to, to make sure that uh, everything continues to function? Yeah, I mean, I, all I have to say is it's like I, I'm, I'm observing. I, I don't. I don't have all the right answers other than I'm cringing. Uh, yeah. And I know, I think and it's a really complex topic. And, you know, my understanding too, is that the, the world pays the price because that who, that's who we owe debt to. So right. it's like, if I owe you a hundred bucks and then we just make a, do a dollar really worth 50 cents, you just, and you just print, you know, a bunch more then what I own my, my peg to real world value. I'd like, hold on, I'm like, hold on, you owe me this. And now, you just printed yeah. more. And so the other countries who uh, the U.S. has debt to maybe are the ones that pay more of the price. That's why, the, you know, I keep hearing the U.S. and like the dollar will remain strong despite what's right. happening. Yeah. But yeah, I don't have the answers here. I, I just kind of am like cringing, but also hoping that like the, you know, the funds help people as we're, you know, people are looking, you know, not being able to work. Like that's, that's yeah. the hard part to me. So, yeah, but so you, I mean, you said you were first reading the Bitcoin white paper in, you know, 2012, 2013. Isn't this sort of the, uh, the environment that this was created for? You know, like, <laughs> are, are, do you think that people are starting to see, you know, a, kind of a crack in the foundation of, of how the general economy works and maybe that this is the time that Bitcoin could shine? I, definitely. And hey, I am, you know, it's funny, there's, there's like Bitcoin maximalists and then you know, people who are all about Ethereum and, and I think actually a lot of people on the Ethereum side, like myself, we love Bitcoin and right. we all got started with Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin, I mean, gold's worth what, $9 trillion or something. And, and most of it just sits like under storage somewhere and it's hard to access. Like Bitcoin to me is a phenomenal store of value and a peg to stable currencies and I don't know, like I actually in the short term don't get excited about paying for coffee with my Bitcoin. I get excited about it being like a phenomenal place to store value and Agreed. be leveraged against for DeFi primitives. And so, so it's, it is just getting started. Like uh, my philosophy has always been never sell Bitcoin, just keep getting, buying more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of of the uh, of the same. Not investment yeah. advice, by the way. <laughs> no, Disclaimer. but uh, like, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> my dad's probably listening would tell me that was nuts. So, um, but yeah, I think that. But I, you know, I do think that it's getting to a point with general awareness where there are people who understand that what's happening is crazy, and maybe they will start buying. 1%, you know, the Chamath, like everybody should own 1% uh, of their uh, net worth should be in Bitcoin in case we go mm -hmm. 
full Mad Max and, and the entire world melts down, I guess. But like you, you, you kind of like insurance, you, you want to have it, but you don't necessarily want, want to have to use it, you know? Um, yeah. You know, and it's, it's really this, this amazing thing that we all own together. Like that is, and that's where I like, don't think it's too far of a stretch to say, are we all going to collectively own the search engine we use someday? Right. Like we collectively are saying, you know what? We don't need to trust anybody because of the, the game theory at play within the way Bitcoin functions. It serves all of us to not, you know, to keep it running. And like for our search engines, Google makes 110 billion a year in revenue. Like why are we not going to switch over to a model where <laughs> we collectively own the search engine and like have better brave. rules and governance? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Brave is a really cool company that at least is like taking steps in that direction. I mean, yeah, yep. I think that, I think that that will happen. I, I do. Um, I want to go back to football a little bit because I've never had yep. the opportunity on the show to talk to anybody <laughs> about, well, cause I'm always fascinated with the arguments about concussions and, and CTE. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, did you have personal experience with that? Do you think that it's a big problem in, in football? Uh, you know, it's I, literally like I grew up in Gainesville and my neighbors yeah. were all like Gator football players, Gator announcers. They've been through the whole thing. And I remember him always being like, ah, oh, that's whatever, man. Look at me. I'm good. I got concussions, you know, and kind of the, yeah. that attitude. But it seems like there's something there. <laughs> You know, I, I, I think I had like five or six concussions and one of them I was, uh, so it was at Texas stadium or like Daryl K Royal stadium playing against the Longhorns and kick return. And one of my teammates missed the, missed uh, the Texas guy and just spearheaded me right in the side of the head. And, uh, this guy, you know, he went on to play for the Eagles, but he was a great player and like strong guy. Just, and I just remember just like, just looking up and like, where am I? And looking around and there's like a hundred thousand people around me. And I was like, Oh my God, I, I'm at a, I'm, at, I'm playing I'm at a football. football stadium. And I, and you know, I ran to the sideline and all of a sudden I like had, like, I could remember the dream I had the night before I was like in this like weird. And, but you know, I was competing for a spot and playing time, you know? And so I just didn't tell anyone I was, I got a concussion <laughs> just played, you know, you get physically ill, you're like sick, but you know, I just went out and kept playing but, uh, yeah, I had my share of concussions and thankfully I've not had any issues. And I know I have some teammates that are like, Hey, do you ever like feel, you know, kind of off? And I don't, thankfully I, I don't, I'm, I feel fortunate. I have no, uh, no issues later, but Hey, or down the road, I think the answer is we need to move back to leather helmets. Yeah. Because then people aren't going to spear each other. It's kind of the, yeah. uh, it's kind of the opposite, right? It's like, who's going to throw their head in there if they're not protected. Yeah. It, Cause your helmet is a weapon. I mean, and if you don't use it, you're going to, you know, it's a disadvantage. You have to use it. And so right now, like all these flags and these things that are happening, it's just like, I just think it's like, it's like, let people play it and like, let's just change the equipment. Cause it, it's less of a protective device and it's become more of an offensive device. And I've I never, rugby. I've never heard it explained that way. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I played on the uh, rugby team after college and and let me tell you, rugby, it's like running and wrestling. There's no hard impact because you just can't ram, ram, your, ram your head into people. Right. And so there's just so far fewer. I mean, it may be like the front line, you know, those guys are banging heads, but the number of concussions is so much lower and it's so much better in your body. People play rugby recreationally until they're like 50 yeah. um, in a lot of countries that play rugby. Might get your ear like ripped off a little bit or something, yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah. <laughs> at least you don't have the long-term damage of concussions. <laughs> Um, yeah. I mean, do you think that they're going to be able to have a college pro football season this year? I hope so. I, I really do. I think, I, you know, I think I love what the NBA is doing, how they're trying to get, they're like, Hey, let's like create this hermetically sealed environment so we can still play get television going. But you know, in terms of fans being the stands, I just don't think it's going to happen. No. And if I don't it think does, gonna it's get... going to be a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're not seeing, like, if you're looking at all the health.org, we're seeing an uptrend estimate in the fall and yeah. winter. And I think we're just getting, we're just going to be in a tough place till we get uh, a vaccine. But, hey, I just hope, I don't know, I really hope we, I'll be, I'll be, I'm already like, you know, dealing with everyone else is dealing with like, I'm tired of being at home and not having any sports. So I'm like, I'd love to be able to watch football this fall. 
Oh yeah. I mean, I, we all have kind of upset. It gives us all something to do. I mean, it's like the, I, I moved back to Gainesville a couple of years ago after living in New York city, Philly and Miami for like 22 years. And so it's the only thing mm-hmm. here. Right. So like yeah. we tailgate right at the front of the stadium, like right on Gator walk with like the, and if that's gone, it's like our entire like social life. You know how these towns are. It's a, it's eliminated. Yeah. Entire. But it's interesting. You talk about the NBA coming to Florida in this hermetically sealed environment. I, I think it's like this incredible idea in principle, but I can't see these guys like remaining in their hotel room, like celibate for six months, <laughs> like not, not going out to find weed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, let's, yeah. like unless, yeah. they're, unless they're going to be really locked in and security, I feel like it's going to end up being this just sort of like, Olympic village free for all, <laughs> you know, I mean? yeah. you know, I mean, and hopefully they do get to have a life and they just, you know, they just get to test them every, you know, but Hey, like they've got to have fun and live. Yeah. You have to, I and mean, like, yeah, you know, and you know, Hey, just like test everybody once a week. And if you're tested, you're like out for two weeks till you're back or something. And, um, but yeah, it, it, it's going to be, it's a lot easier in theory than practice. That's, that's for sure. And you did an iron man, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, so you're, you're one of those. <laughs> well, no, no. Let me tell you, I'd, I'd never done a triathlon. I did a tri- triathlon when I was like, maybe, I think I was like eight years old and I did a sprint with my dad. Yeah. And but then I didn't do another one ever. And I was no, I wasn't about distance sports at all. And I was in Japan and one of my customers was like always kept trying to talk me into doing a, doing an Ironman. And his whole thing is like, it's a whole hog approach. You, your first triathlon, you just do a full Ironman. Because if you do a half Ironman or something else, then you're never going to want to do the Ironman. Right, it'll be so bad, right? You'll suffer yeah. so much that you never want to Yeah, he's like, just right. go all the way in. And then we're out drinking. We're in, you know, in Tokyo. It's like two in the morning. I'm like, I'm doing the Ironman. And everyone's like toasting, cheer, like, you know, like committed. And Oops. then the next day I woke up and I was like, oh, shit, what did I do? Yeah. And so then, you know, I had four months. And I like went and bought a bike. I learned how to like, I could only swim like two laps without needing to get air. And I just like hacked the techniques. I was just watching YouTube videos and I, I like just tried to perfect my swim technique and my cycling technique and like my nutrition and my running technique. And I, I got a physical therapist on day one. And I started doing all these like, you know, prehabilitation things and, and I did it. I completed it. It took 15 hours. Yeah, still it was painful, but uh, me 15 yeah, that days. was my, yeah. <laughs> But I mean, most people train for a lot longer than four months, I would imagine, right? And, and you don't go, I mean, you laugh about it, but like most people who do Ironman have done 10, 20 triathlons and have sort of scaled up, I would imagine. I mean, it just seems, I don't think there's anything for me, and I've been an athlete my whole life, um, nothing worse than even just running a marathon, much less adding all the other parts of an Ironman onto it. I mean, it just I never run like, a marathon. Either. I hate running. I hate it. I hate it. I love sprinting. I'll run from here yeah. to somewhere for a practical yeah. purpose. But like, I think you know what though? There's something about something about the like whole hog approach doing the full Ironman. It's just like such a crazy goal that you just are like driven to action. It's like I need to like I need to focus to make this happen. I need to build a plan, and it's like. I think it's almost easier than doing training for like 10 years to do an Ironman. Right. If uh, yeah, I could go I back mean, and tell myself though, I would have trained like 20% more because I was miserable. It was yeah. horrible. I mean, it seems just horrible. <laughs> like just, it was just, it was so I mean, painful. Would you, would you ever do it again? Or was it one of those things where you were like, I've done it. I'm never doing any triathlon. I'm never running further than like my couch to my kitchen again. This is over. You know what? I was, so I was on a bike and I was on the bikes and a monsoon hit and I was just wearing this like singlet and I wasn't like, you know, keeping up with the Japanese news. And I didn't, you know, like didn't realize that this like typhoon or monsoon had changed directions. And so I didn't have a jacket. I didn't have any, any warm clothes. And all of a sudden it just starts raining sideways and it gets like 50 degrees. And I was like eight hours on a bike and I was just crying, like just getting hit in the face with rain and wind. And I just remember, I was like, you know what? I, I want to write a letter to myself right now and tell myself never, ever, ever do an Ironman ever again. Yeah. Because I just know, like, I knew that when you cross the finish line, you just get hit with such, such a high. You're like, that's what happens to people. Then they keep doing them. 
And now I'm kind of thinking, you know, I don't, care. I like, I don't know what kind I'm of like, maybe I'll do another cool. one. Like, you know, I'm thinking about it again. And I'm like, yeah, I'll get back in really good shape. And I'll just, and so yeah. I'm starting to think, I wish I had that letter right now. So I could have like told myself that's, how horrible that's it like is. The I'm horrible, to that's like the horrible <laughs> ex-girlfriend who was the worst thing ever. And then like five years later, <laughs> you're like, oh, she wasn't that bad. And you start remembering only the good stuff and not the bad yeah. stuff. That's also why they say that people like have a second, third, fourth kid is because you forget like your brain erases yeah. how awful it was having a baby. And they're like, oh, it was fine. <laughs> but at the time it was absolutely terrible. So yeah. do, you ever get, do you ever get to play football anymore? I mean, do you miss the game? It's not like tennis or golf, which you can go out and play for the rest of your life. Like you can't just like go play football by yourself, right? So, Yeah, that's the saddest thing about football. I think anybody listening who played in high school, college, or like whenever you play your last game, it's really sad because you know you're never going to put the equipment on again. Ever. Like hardly any. Yeah, you're just done. And, you know, you can go. So I, I love going and throwing the football around and just like running around. But you don't ever get to really play. So it's uh, yeah, it's kind of a sad thing. Did you ever uh, like think that you would go play? I mean, whether in the NFL or professionally somewhere else, or did you always sort of know that college was going to be the end of your, your football career? Yeah, so I so I started my junior year and I thought like, you know, I thought, hey, I could do it. And, you know, I just had, frankly, just had a really bad injury. And, Same and story then for I remember like, you know, it was like, I remember just being by myself, uh, going on this walk and saying, you know what, I'm not going to be able, my dream's over. I've got to find a new one. And then I, then I was like, you know, I'm going to move to Silicon Valley and I'm, gonna, I'm going to, I've got another goal. And I shifted my goal. So you were able to fully you know, everyone, uh, when sadly Kobe passed away, like they, I think one of the major focuses was like, this guy has this incredible second act that we're all missing. Right. Like he had this, yeah. this, this basketball career is incredible, but now he's a venture capitalist and a business owner and he's, you know, succeeding in the same manner outside of sports that he did before. I don't feel like most athletes get there like mentally. I think there's this, I mean, I know coming from music and stuff and having a certain level of like success, mm -hmm. I mean, you definitely miss the attention and you miss the game or whatever, but like, I guess it's just a rare person that can make the transition and, and go as hard or as big. It's something completely different after focusing their whole life on that one thing. How did you like say to yourself? Yeah. Okay. Football's done. Here we go. You know what I mean? I did it with music into crypto and it's been great, but it's a very hard thing. Yeah. to do. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. I think, you know, you have to like set your North star and just like really emotionally say, all right, like, and it's hard because your identity is wrapped up in this other thing. Your, the lifestyle you have is, is different. And, and I just said, Hey, I'm going to go do this. And I'll tell you, like, it wasn't easy because in college at playing at Nebraska, right. And if you're yeah, starting to imagine man. You're, it's a really good lifestyle, you know, <laughs> you're, you are, you're, you're gone. You did well. And, and so I, so I took a job for this tech company and like, leave, leave Lincoln, like bye everybody. Like, you know, being kind of like a well-known person and, and like, having this awesome life. And then I moved, then this, this company in Silicon Valley hired me and they said, Hey, you have to move to North Carolina and work there for three to six months. And then we'll move you to California if you do well. And so I'm in Cal I'm in North Carolina. I'm like every day sitting in a cubicle, like cold calling people who are hanging up on me, you know, calling it directors and CIOs. And like, I'd got to bars and no, like, like, Oh, you, you aren't from here. Like, yeah. it was like, and I just thought to myself, I was like, oh my God, I'm like a total loser compared to what I was before. Yeah. And I have no friends. I'm like, go to work every day and sit in a cubicle. And then, you know, I just kind of was like, hey, I'm going to like turn this around. I'm going to like, and I just pushed through, but it wasn't easy, but you just have to like have your you know vision of where you want to go and then figure out how do I get there? Like, what do I need to do? And you probably went through something similar, right? When you were you know, switching I, like, gears. I, to some degree, yeah, but I was already... I mean, I was already like approaching 40. I'm 43 years old. And so I didn't really yeah. quit DJ until I was 38 or 39, even though it was like a kind of a slow transition and it was forced to some degree by having yeah. kids and, you know, like off the road. But yeah, I went through it. And even at that age, it's like, it's hard not to be cool anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> at, the, at, the, at that basic level, it's hard to admit that. But it's like you said, like, you know, if I went out in the cities where I lived, like I knew everyone, I could walk into any place, yeah. high five, you know? And then it was like, 
here at Crypto Trader. Yeah. Well, you're doing crypto now. Hey, you're yeah. doing crypto now, which is very cool. It's cool. No, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm just saying it's just it is very strange. It's a transition. Years, but transition. I always, I, I'm, I think I'm like you, where I would just push through it and be confident. Like I, just not the kind to sit around and wait for something to happen. Like, okay, that's it. Let's go on and do the next thing. But I just yeah. wonder for a lot of athletes who get to that, yeah. that level, how hard that must be, especially football where like your career's over in your late twenties for most people. And what are you gonna do with yeah. the rest of your life? And you know, Hey, I had to like, I, I tell you, it was like, it was rewarding though. But like, I was glad I went through that pain for those years, just kind of like completely like ripping the bandaid off. And like, and I, and I'd go back to link. I went back to Lincoln. I, when I moved to, moved to, California, when I got the you know promotion, drove back across the country, went back to Lincoln on the way back and hung out with my friends and they're still living the same like lifestyle. I was like, you guys, uh, <laughs> you know, and I was like, you know what, I'm investing in the future. And some of them, you know, I go back and they're, uh, I don't, uh, well, I don't want to comment on where any of them are, but some of them, I'm sure like I was like, you know, and here, and then I was like a couple years later, I get into hang out and every week I was in New York or Tokyo or San Francisco I was working really, really hard, but I was, you know, had like a new fun reinvention of myself and what, what life was. And now that I'm working in crypto, I have to say it's like another level of like intellectual stimulation and fun. I agree. And, uh, and I'm, I'm loving it too. Cause I was, you know, in enterprise software purely it was deep tech, but this is deep tech, but there's other interesting things here and it's a fun place to be. Well, really impressive, man. I love your story. And I think hopefully some people find some inspiration there because I know that a lot of people find it hard to really find that next, next act, as we said. So where, where can people keep up with you after this? Where can people follow what scale is scale is doing? Yeah. So Twitter is a great, you can fo follow me at Jack O'Halloran. Um, you can also go at scale network is the scale network, Twitter. And then if you go to scale.network, scale with a K, that's the website. And you can, we can see it on your shirt. Links. We can see it on your shirt, at least for, for the yeah, people yeah, who, there we who go. decide to watch. It's my, so. hack my, my yeah. Denver hackathon shirt, by the way, I've got my buffer corn for anybody uh, who knows the, the buffer corn. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't even notice that the whole time. I just saw the scale part. Well, man, it's, thank a, you. Uh, it's the, the mascot of the ETH Denver hackathon. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure hey, there's hey, a few people. We go, go ahead, please. Yeah. Before we go, if the Huskers ever play Florida in Gainesville, I'm coming to visit you, all right? Oh, we've got, <laughs> I'm telling you, we've got like the, the tailgate of all tailgates, like with the you know, air-conditioned tent and the screens and catered everything right at the front. We, we do it big, so you're invited anytime. But uh, we, we might have to meet in Lincoln, too. I don't know. I can't guarantee it'll be. Yeah, hey, all right, <laughs> let's, let's do it. And I've never made that trip, so I would love to do that. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. And I look forward to what you guys uh, have coming in the future. All right. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at Scott Melker to continue the conversation. See you next week.